Welcome to the Behavior Speak podcast. Now, here's your host, Ben Ryman. Welcome to another episode of the Behavior Speak podcast. As always, I'm your host, uh, Ben Ryman. Excited about today's episode. Uh, today, uh, I always like when when uh, when I'm able to have a conversation with somebody who's using using our science in 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 areas that that not a lot of folks are, you know. And so we've 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 seen lots of good research coming out in you know things like OBM and and safety and and uh, and uh, and just did a recent interview with uh, Wes Lowry on on sports behavior analysis. And so there's there's really lots of cool areas where where we can apply our sciences well beyond sort of the autism world. Um, and 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 so I, I think it's really good for folks to to learn about these areas and and potentially if they want to kind of go in them themselves, but also just to know that there are, uh, they, they may come across, uh, you know, clients they're supporting that have some some issues that are, go beyond sort of, you know, the typical types of challenges we might be used to. And so it's always nice to, you know, get a, get a different perspective. And so today I'm, I'm very happy to have uh, uh, Srinity Subramaniam um, of uh, University of uh, California, um, and she's California gonna, State University. Thank you, and she's going to pronounce the 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 full word of Stan State for me because I never get it right. What's the Stan? Stanislaus. Stanislaus. Thank you. I can never get mm-hmm. that right. Um, well, Trinity, thanks so much for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for asking me to come talk. Amazing. Uh, I always like to kind of uh, get a little bit of an origin story on folks, kind of how how they kind of got into the field. Uh, I, I think this is it's, it's it's nice to kind of get background, but I think it also helps uh, you know younger folks and students um, who uh, may be wondering kind of how they get from point A to point B um, to get to get a little sort of uh, uh, timeline uh, from folks because often folks enter the ABA field in sort of a, a similar kind of way. But then to eventually kind of get over to, uh, 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 you know, a, a more unique specialization, uh, folks, I think folks really can find that information valuable. So maybe you could just tell us a bit kind of how you got into ABA in the first place, sort of just your beginnings there. And then kind of what brought you from, I presume, what brought you from maybe a sort of a standard, more maybe autism focused um, intervention sort of realm into sort of in, in, into kind of more into substance addiction and poverty. For sure. That's a great question. I I got into ABA through the experimental analysis of behavior, so I might be kind of a unicorn in the field in that way. Uh, I went to undergraduate um, at Armstrong Atlantic State University. Now it's a campus of Georgia Southern University. At the time, it was Armstrong Atlantic State University, and there was a behavior analyst over there, Dr. Forrest Files. And he was working on alcohol self-administration studies with rats. Now, when I started at Armstrong, I was mostly interested in addiction. Um, And that's always been broadly a research interest of mine. I don't know anyone in this world whose life hasn't been touched by addiction in some way. And so one of the things that I wanted to do with my career in psychology is investigate the conditions under which people become addicted and how we can treat uh, this kind of disorder. And when I went to Armstrong, I heard Dr. Files was working on research related to addiction. 
And I got up the nerve to ask him if I could be a research assistant in his lab. Uh, it was a really nice teaching type university, just undergraduate students in the psychology department. And so Dr. Files was excited to welcome me to the lab, um, but he wanted to make sure that I understood what he was doing. He said, you know, I do research with rats, right? Um, which intrigued me because he applied the basic science of the experimental analysis of behavior to look at drug use as operant behavior. Um, and so I got involved in that lab, uh, mixing up sugar solutions, uh, getting rats to drink, finding out, you know, what is the right ratio of sugar to alcohol to get them to start to self-administer because rats are not just going to drink grain alcohol. I'm sure most humans don't start drinking with grain alcohol. They start drinking with mixers and sweet beverages that are mixed with alcohol. And uh, that started my journey in behavior analysis. Later on, uh, Dr. Mirari Alcoro joined the faculty at Armstrong, and I started working with her on setting up uh, the rat lab that she ended up setting up. And she was a graduate of West Virginia University. And so she began to talk to me a bit about her experience there, and, and I thought it sounded like a great school. And so I applied to go there for my uh, PhD program, and uh, I got in and I started working on uh, investigations of basic behavioral processes like choice and timing that sort of underlie uh, addictive processes um, with Dr. Elizabeth Kayanka, who ended up being my PhD advisor. And so I say I got tricked into to ABA um, because really my journey started with EAB. But when I was at WVU, West Virginia University, uh, I got a research assistantship with Dr. Claire St. Peter who was doing some work on training parents of children with autism to implement discrete trial training in the home setting. Uh, and she was interested in disseminating that intervention through telehealth kind of uh, resources and really old school telehealth, like mailing these parents videos of how to do DTT through the postal mail um, or or mailing them uh, instruct written instructions on how to do DTT through postal mail. Um, and so I got the experience of, you know, practicing applied behavior analysis in that way, in that parent training, telehealth kind of way. Um, and I continued to work with Dr. St. Peter throughout my uh, graduate school career there at West Virginia, ended up getting the hours to sit for the BCBA exam and took the coursework and became uh, board certified. Okay, well, so you... Uh, uh, Joking, of course, but you 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 totally uh, uh, went against my entire theory of how you got into the field. Um, <laughs> uh, so yeah, you you kind of went the whole opposite route. Like again, most of the guests I've had on here started, you know, as maybe a you know um, an RBT or some version of that earlier before that name existed. Um, went to college, saw an ad on the board, went did some home programs you know, gotten to the field that way. And that's sort of been their journey. And then, you know, anyone who's sort of specialized, it was way down the road. But you, you, your experience is kind of, kind of, you know, the opposite. You're, you're, you were sort of introduced to, you already, so you already had an interest in addictions kind of coming into the program. Mm -hmm. um, um, and so, uh, and, and so this was something that was sort of, of mind, like, even before you started your undergrad, is that, the, is that what it was? Or? When I was an undergraduate student, and and was was it 
you know, and, and, and without, you know, sort of getting too personal, was it sort of, you know, from, from life experience of knowing folks who were addicted and, and wanting to learn more there, or was it just sort of something in the, in, in, in the undergrad program that just sort of spiked your interest? Yes, for sure. I have known people with addiction uh, growing up and, you know, I experienced my own, you know, experimentation with uh, alcohol and drugs. And, and it was just fascinating to me um, to uh, get a better understanding of those mechanisms scientifically, because it is so intriguing uh, from a lay person's perspective. Um, but and we come up with all kinds of strange and inventive theories about why people use drugs and um, why they continue to use despite negative consequences, uh, but uh, generally don't understand the principles of effective treatment that we've learned through science. And so I, I have a scientific background. I've always kind of thought like a scientist. And mm. so I wanted to um, use my psychology career to get a, a better understanding of addiction from that perspective. Oh, that's really cool. We we, we kind of had a bit of a, a chat a couple of weeks ago and kind of dove into your research a bit. But one area we kind of didn't really talk too much about, and, and I just wouldn't mind getting a little bit more sort of detail, only because I just recently did an interview with, with um, uh, another fella, um, uh, Val Saney, uh, who also was doing a lot of EAB stuff. And I, I have, prior to him, I had not interviewed anyone who was doing EAB, and nor did I have any experience doing EAB, uh, nor did even my graduate program even touch on really EAB. Uh, if, if my supervisor is listening and you did touch on it and I missed it, I apologize, <laughs> uh, but I don't think we did. Um, and so, he really was he kind of really went through a lot around uh you know translational research and and that whole mm -hmm. piece and kind of explained that whole process to me and and made it quite a quite a bit more interesting to me so i'm i'm curious sort of just sort of as it relates to, i guess to maybe more the alcohol drug piece those those areas of sort of choice and timing and and what was the other one was it impulse mm -hmm. or uh, so what what are you what are you looking at with when you're looking at kind of those those areas and kind of how does that relate to drug addiction? You know that's a big question and I can touch on it a little bit. I think um, yeah. there the, everything we do uh, can be drilled down to these sort of basic behavioral processes. Mm. And of course the the more complex we get, you know, addiction is a pretty complex process that in, involves neurobiological mechanisms, but also. Uh, behavioral mechanisms and the choices that we make. And a lot of times people talk about, you know, there's this controversy about addiction as a choice um, mm. versus a compulsion. And I think the real debate there is on how we view choice, right? And behavior analysis has done a lot of great work for many, many decades on conceptualizing choice as the allocation of behavior, right? The allocation of behavior to different alternatives. And so when we think about using drugs, drug use as an operant behavior, it's, it, it's a behavior that's maintained by its consequences, but it's also a behavior that occurs when other concurrently available options are there. Um, so we had a little bleep there, but we were talking about um, kind of in terms of, sort of the EAB perspective um, and how there's kind of some of these sort of basic, uh, you know, uh, constructs, I guess, choice and timing and some other things that, that I, you, I, I think you were starting to say um, kind of apply to 
a whole bunch of different areas. Uh, maybe just just a little bit. We won't dive too deep into the EAB realm here. I know it's it's a bit of a broad question, but okay. uh, k- kind of how studying that stuff can help, you know, with understanding sort of addictions and, and, and things like that. If you're planning on collecting continuing education credits for this episode, you'll need to go to cbiconsultants.com and enter the three secret words. The first secret word is addiction. Yeah, I think one way that it helps is to get this idea of addiction as operant behavior that's maintained and modifiable by its consequences. So if we think about drug use as an operant behavior, we can identify some functional relations between the environment and that behavior that can be used to get a sense of why this behavior is occurring and how we can address the behavior. And basic, there's a lot of basic research EAB on quantitative models that describe and help us to understand hmm. operant behavior in general. And that's things like the matching law and uh, conceptualizations of impulsivity as delayed discounting, which some have even proposed is an underlying behavioral mechanism for all addiction processes. Um, And so getting an understanding of, you know, just looking at drug addiction as an operant behavior um, helps me to take that behavior analytic perspective and apply it to the potential for treatments and, and the general understanding of, of addiction processes. One of the things that I find interesting when we talk about addiction and conceptualizing addiction is some people say that addiction is a compulsion and other people say addiction is a choice, but I think it all boils down to how we define choice and behavior analysis has given us this values-free conceptualization of choice as the allocation of behavior across alternatives. And so if I can look at drug use as a choice, that's simply the allocation of behavior across alternatives, then the important question is, what are the alternatives? And drugs are powerful reinforcers. And what are some ways that you can shift choices away from powerful reinforcers? Well, you can offer other powerful reinforcers, which kind of led me into my interest in the more applied work uh, in contingency management. Mm, interesting. Yeah, because I mean, because it's interesting you, that your point there about sort of, you know, whether it's a compulsion or, or a choice. I was um, talking to someone about now, and the, the, this may not sort of fit the same realm. I don't know if it does. I mean, I, drug addict, when we talk about addiction, um, and again, I'm certainly by no means uh, an expert in this in any way. But when we talk about addiction. You know, we think about drugs, and we think about we think about things with chemicals, and uh, that that we ingest or inhale or whatnot um, that then have some sort of effect on our brain, and um, and and then sort of the I guess the assumption there is that that you know effect and on our brain creates you know this kind of you know, compulsion, as you put it. Um, um, but then when we start thinking about sort of other addictions, um, like, like gambling or, or um, uh, mm-hmm. food, although that's still putting something in your body, um, uh, or sex addiction, I guess, is another one. 
um, that they talk about um, where it's, there's no sort of, you know, substance going into your body. Um, mm -hmm. And then, and, and when I've talked to other behavior analysts, they've, they've actually said, suggested, uh, particularly in the, in the, in, in terms of sex addiction, that it's not, that's not a real thing. Sex addiction is not a real thing. Um, um, the psychologists say it, the DSM says it, it's not a real thing. Um, um, like what, what do you do with that? Like I, I, as far as sort of, um, uh, you know, I hear you, what you're saying about it sort of being, you know, operant behavior, but then there's sort of these, the, this, the chemical side of things that's sort of affecting things. Um, um, is, is it just that the chemicals are, are the powerful reinforcer and that's it. We just got to find something better. Also deal with the withdrawal symptoms and, and whatnot of, of sort of being on that chemical. Um, I don't really know what my question here is now. I kind of come to, to babbling here, but I guess part one is sort of, you know, what what makes it an addiction, um, and 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 part two does does things like gambling and sex and these <laughs> other sorts of addictions, I guess, that don't involve ingesting something, do they work the same way as far as you know when you're coming at it from that sort of EAD perspective? Sure. Yeah. So. In some ways, they do work the same way, and in other ways, they don't. And you're right, the distinction between interoceptive stimuli, those internal chemical changes that happen when someone ingests a drug, the occupation of receptors, and that kind of thing, is going to be maybe different than exteroceptive stimuli. For example, a gambler looking at a slot machine with those mm -hmm. three cherries on the pay line. Um, but the I can't speak to the total body of research comparing behavioral addictions to substance use disorder and why some behavioral addictions are diagnosable. So gambling disorder is diagnosable, binge eating disorder is diagnosable, yep. um, but not uh, sex addiction or smartphone addiction. That's been something I've been uh, trying to learn a little bit more about recently is um, this just need to have that smartphone. And, and right. there are similar symptoms with uh, behavioral addictions that involve sort of more compulsive behaviors and exposure to exteroceptive stimuli are very similar to the symptoms of substance use disorder. People have experienced or reported experiencing withdrawal when they can't have their smartphone, um, that they get irritable and uncomfortable when they're when maybe they leave their smartphone at home. Um, people have developed to tolerance to gambling um, and and, and uh, these other kind of traditionally physiological ideas of dependence that we have for substance use disorder. So and others have done really interesting research showing that the neurobiology underlying uh, substance use disorder and uh, compulsive overeating, for example, it's really similar. Like the same brain pathways are activated and mm. the, the same biological processes are happening. Um, and so there are arguments that these are not, not things. And there are arguments that all addiction uh, has the same underlying processes. But, but it's, a, it's a big question that has yet to be answered is what makes an addiction an addiction? I think the clinical answer would be clinically significant impairment or distress, 
Um, and so, you know, if somebody says that this is a problem for them, then we should assume that, okay, this is a socially significant problem for them. Um, and they should have access to the kinds of treatments that can solve that problem. Totally. Yeah, no, and, uh, you know, I'd be interested to see kind of if, if you end up, you know, actually doing some research in the smart form realm, I was thinking sort of, um, and this will, you know, date the recording of this of this episode, but uh, the, uh, the 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 shutdown, as it were, of 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 the of the Facebook Instagram there last week, where mm-hmm. where for what is it for six or six or eight hours, people couldn't access access those things, and I know even myself, I was engaging in kind of, you know maybe some withdrawal like behaviors as I was, you know, clicking on it over and over again and trying to make it happen and getting frustrated that it's not happening. And then realizing, wait a second, I'm getting a a free break from this stuff. Why am I, why why am I so stressed that for six hours, I can't look at my phone and, and and sort of access, you know, some of these websites. So I I imagine all, all, all of the world was going through a, a, a sort of, you know, temporary uh, withdrawal experience there. Mm-hmm. And this idea of craving too. So taking you back to that EAB realm, I did a really simple uh, experiment when I was an undergraduate at Armstrong is I looked at craving as an increase in response rate following a period of abstinence. And we can call craving, you know, of our smartphone or our internet or, our, you know, a lot of people have um, cyberspace oriented relationships is, is one of the underlying um, uh, addiction processes with yes. smartphones and internet is that we want to have that social connection that we have. Um, and so that increase in like those clicks trying to log in, we could just look at that as operant behavior. Yeah, yeah, totally. Really, and so just one other kind of question on the EAB thing because it's it, it's so fascinating, and maybe another time we'll maybe we'll just talk about that. Uh, but when we're kind of understanding addiction, does does EAB kind of have an explanation for you know the addiction while you're the addiction piece, or maybe I don't know if that's the right term, but sort of the behaviors you engage in when you're consuming the substance, so your your brain's actively receiving those drugs and whatnot versus the behaviors you engage in, you know, when you've gone through a long enough period of abstinence to not have the chemicals in your system anymore. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. And and some would call this more applied research, but there's Mm. a a large body of research on behavioral pharmacology looking at, you know, uh, stimulus discrimination and drug discrimination and self-administration under different conditions of intoxication versus abstinence. Uh, And, you know, you can model those same functional relations at different doses of drugs um, and get an idea of an individual's ability to learn or to time different stimuli that are presented to them or to uh, make, you know, self-controlled choices or choices for the uh, larger later versus smaller sooner reinforcer. Um, And yeah, there's, there's, a, a great body of research on it spanning several decades in the in oh, the amazing. 1960s there are some amazing studies um on drug self-administration hmm. okay wow so behavioral pharmacology is a whole other realm that one can 
what can kind of enter if they want to learn more about that piece. Very good. Yeah. Um, okay, well, let's let's maybe start diving into some of the work you're doing right now. So you've been, um, at, or, or you've done sort of over the last, um, I guess, five or six years now even, um, or, or longer, um, you're, 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 you and a group of folks have put out uh, a bunch of research, um, um, kind of all all seeming to be kind of of, of a similar project related to this sort of idea of um, of the therapeutic workplace, which I think we're going to, which we can dive into a little more and mm-hmm. get an idea of what it was, but kind of how, how did you kind of, because I, and, and then we're going to dive into this here. I, I kind of just don't even understand how you, how you do this kind of research. Um, you know, I mean, these subjects are, are, you know, a totally different breed. You know, there's there's um, in terms of sort of you know motivation to want to participate and and sort of all those pieces. So maybe just talk a little bit first about kind of um, what this whole research project has been about. You've put out qu- quite a few studies on kind of some different areas, but I think they've all kind of been around the same kind of context and and maybe some of the same subjects. Um, so kind of what was the the aim of the whole project? Who's involved? kind of that bit of a, that overview before we kind of dive into some of the components. Yeah. So after I graduated from West Virginia University, I kind of, I landed my dream postdoc position at uh, Johns Hopkins School of Medicine in their behavioral pharmacology research unit. And I got to, to work with uh, Dr. Ken Silverman, who developed the therapeutic workplace. Uh, he's a, a great researcher who's been doing this work for several decades Um and most recently with Dr. August Holton, um, who's working with him on uh, modifying the therapeutic workplace or or, uh, building on the therapeutic workplace to support uh, employment outcomes in individuals living in poverty. So when I got started working with them, I, I was interested in addiction. I'm definitely also interested in poverty. I uh, am on board with this idea that we have a hierarchy of needs, and if our basic needs are met, then it's less likely that we'll engage in aberrant behavior. Um, and so, a lot of people who are using substances are perhaps pulled to the use to the use of substances because other aspects of their life are not reinforcing. And especially in this the in the United States, this is capitalist society where I live, having money, having income. Um, and having satisfying employment um, definitely helps people, you know, uh, make those choices that are ultimately beneficial in the long run. And so a lot of people who are living in poverty who will also engage in chronic drug use might not be engaging in drug use if they um, are pulled out of poverty, if they have access to financial resources, access to employment, um, and a way to live a more satisfying life. Um, and so the participants who they work with in the therapeutic workplace have typically been characterized by the medical community, by the psychology community as treatment resistant. Um, they're individuals who are um, have experienced treatment episodes for substance use disorder, but have not maintained drug abstinence or maintained good treatment outcomes following treatment. So they might have been people who have been in this revolving door into residential facilities. Um, and, you know, the, the way that Medicaid and other um, reimbursement systems work is that people can only have so many ep- treatment episodes um, in general. People can only have so many treatment episodes in that um, high intense, intensive placement. Mm-hmm. 
So in a residential treatment. And so they're going into residential treatment and coming out and then relapsing to drug use um, and then coming back in and, and maybe, you know, having bouts of outpatient treatment. Um, maybe they're in medication assisted treatment programs uh, like methadone and buprenorphine programs. These are medications that are FDA approved to treat uh, opioid use disorder. So individuals can be maintained on those medications for a long time. And, and it right. generally helps people um, to stay abstinent. But then there are certain people who are in methadone programs who um, are also addicted to cocaine, which has no FDA approved ph pharmacological treatment. Um, oh. And they're on methadone and using cocaine at the same time. And, and that leads to um, a lot of um, distress in their lives. Um, and so in the 90s, uh, Steve Higgins developed a voucher-based contingency management program for individuals with, um, who were addicted to cocaine uh, because there was no specific pharmacological treatment for them. And uh, other general psychology-based approaches were not working for most people, at least for those treatment-resistant people who were using cocaine and methadone treatment or continue to use cocaine despite being able to quit other substances. And so the um, intervention was just a positive reinforcement-based intervention where individuals submitted uh, uh, urine samples. The urine samples were tested for metabolites of, of cocaine, uh, and they could earn vouchers for um, drug-free urine samples. Um, and, and importantly, he developed this escalating schedule of reinforcement where initially participants could earn some small amount of money. And then with each consecutive cocaine-free urine sample, they could earn a little bit more and more and more until they got to the highest value. Um, and that escalating schedule tends to sustain longer periods of uh, drug abstinence. And they found this program to be quite effective for people with uh, cocaine addiction. And... Um, there have been a lot of different applications of contingency management since. Since then, contingency management has been recognized as an evidence-based treatment for stimulant use disorder um, for addiction in general. Um, it's been applied in to a variety of different populations in a variety of different ways using different reinforcers like uh, prize-based contingency management where the reinforcer is not a monetary voucher but a, a, a good or service that the um, uh, participant got as a prize. Um, there has been employment-based abstinence reinforcement, and that's uh, been pioneered by Dr. Silverman in the therapeutic workplace, where individuals could earn uh, vouchers or monetary incentives. Now they're doing them on reloadable credit cards um, for drug-free urines, but also for work. So they attend a workplace, and they can earn, wage, earn their incentives as wages, and they can earn maximum incentives for drug-free urine samples. Um, in addition to showing up and participating in the work. And the work is usually um, some sort of therapeutic work um, targeting behaviors that are socially significant for the participants. So things like uh, job skills training and education. So they come in, they do work. The work is job skills training and education. They earn wages for the work and they can earn maximum wages for um, maintaining um, drug abstinence as well. And so when I started working with Dr. Silverman and, and Dr. Holton, uh, they were conducting a large-scale evaluation of the therapeutic workplace um, using a wage supplement model. So any time you have a treatment for addiction, whether it be methadone, cognitive behavioral therapy, 
or contingency management, when the intervention ends, usually a lot of people will relapse. That's the case across the board with any sort of um, treatment for addiction. And that's definitely a, an issue that's been brought up in the research on contingency management. When the incentives end, people will many people will relapse to drug use. And so one of the solutions to that is to maintain the contingencies for a longer period of time to see if, you know, if you can uh, maintain abstinence for a year, two years, three years, or four years, after that, will the person be so used to um, drug abstinence and a drug-free lifestyle and engaging in alternative behaviors that then when the incentives end um, or are faded out, they're able to continue with drug abstinence? Um, mm. Dr. Silverman, in, in some of his research, has extended the therapeutic workplace, I think, up to four years. And they found that, wow. um, uh, yeah, and they found that after four years, um, they didn't see any difference between groups in their abstinence outcomes, but people continued to participate in the treatment. So when we think about treatment resistant participants, they're not so resistant to contingency management type interventions because of the rich schedule of reinforcement that they get mm -hmm. um, from participating in those interventions. The this, this study that I um, helped uh, complete was a study of um, a wage supplement model to maintain abstinence contingencies over a, the long term and also to promote employment in community in real jobs in the community. So you can keep the incentives uh, indefinitely, but you can also try and get people to um, access a higher income, uh, access more resources from mm. their community through the treatment. And right. hopefully by doing that, getting people employment, they'll be able to um, continue being drug-free for a, a, a longer term. So in the, in the therapeutic workplace, there are two phases. The first phase is usually uh, takes place over about three months. Um, hmm. And it's uh, an abstinence initiation and training phase. Right. where uh, individuals will uh, experience those abstinence contingencies um, to earn their incentives, and uh, they'll participate in, in the job skills training program. And then in phase two, that's where you can test some different ways to extend the contingencies or help people to access uh, other reinforcers in their life. And the model that we evaluated was the wage supplement model. Wage supplements have been used by governments and uh, uh, other nonprofits to help individuals who are living in poverty uh, to gain and maintain employment. Mm. And what wage supplements are, are just uh, additional uh, incentives, monetary incentives for getting a job and keeping a job. Mm. So what we did was we offered participants wage supplements for getting employment in real jobs, competitive employment in the community. They would hand in their, so in the in phase two, which lasted a year, yep. if they were able to get a job right away, they would continue to, to drug test with us. We faded the frequency of drug testing for individuals who had sustained abstinence so that they wouldn't have to test three times a week, um, mm. which is kind of difficult to do when, you know, you're out and employed. Sure. Um, but we would fade out the frequency of drug tests, but we would uh, offer them wage supplements for uh, the hours that they worked verified by their official pay stubs from their mm. employer. Mm. Uh, participants could earn their pay and could earn up to an additional $8 
in incentives for every hour that they worked up to 40 hours a week. So they could earn thousands of dollars in wage supplements for getting a job and, and maintaining that job over and above their paychecks. And we wow. thought this might be a really good way to encourage employment. Um, and we thought it might also be a good way to help people get out of poverty too. So um, with we we evaluated the incentive in a incentive system, the wage supplement system in, in a few different papers that we've published since. And in the main trial, we found that yes, the wage supplements were helpful in maintaining long-term drug abstinence and also in promoting employment. And interestingly, the wage supplements were effective in um, helping people to get out of poverty. And so how we looked at this is we compared uh, whether or not people in each group, so we did, this is a, a randomized control trial. So there were mm. two groups and it was a between subjects design. So we compared a usual care control group who um, were people who were um, invited to work with a job um, employment counselor mm -hmm. uh, and continue to come to the therapeutic workplace after phase one, but they did not earn the wage supplements. Mm. And participants um, in the wage supplement group were able to work with the employment counselor and also earned wage supplements. Mm. And what we found was that a higher percentage of individuals in the wage supplement group were out of poverty by the end of the intervention and in each month of the intervention than individuals in the uh, usual care control group. And this was not counting. So it was just looking at their wages, not counting the wage supplements that they earned. So even when we subtracted the wage supplements out of their overall income, individuals in the wage supplement group were able to get out of poverty at a higher rate than individuals in the usual care control group. Okay, lots of stuff there. So <laughs> yes. really cool. So what... So with the I'm confused by the wage supplement. So the way the wage supplement is in addition to sort of what they're already making at this job, and this job is, but this job is within that therapeutic workplace. That's a good question. So in phase one, their job was within the therapeutic workplace. Mm. Once they were in phase two, they were invited to work with an employment counselor who would help them to. Uh, find jobs, put in applications, do mock interviews, build their resumes, help them to get employment um, as mm, rapidly as no possible. And some participants got jobs right away. Mm -hmm. And other participants took a little while to get it. Actually, we had one participant who was in phase two for 50 weeks before they were able to get a job. But those wow. last couple of weeks, they got a job and they got some wage supplements. Um, and other participants took a slower approach where they joined training programs to get more specialized jobs. Um, and once they got those specialized jobs, they were able to earn their wage supplements. Um, participants could still earn incentive for working with the, the um, employment counselor, mm -hmm. but they could earn uh, uh, incentives only for up to 20 hours a week working with the employment counselor. So the real incentive was to get a job. That way they earned a paycheck and on top of that, they earned wage supplements. I see, I see, I see. So you, 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 I was trying to imagine how one would fund both the wage and the supplement at the same time. That's a, right. the, 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 the thousand dollars, thousands of dollars, as it were, all coming out of, out of your pocket could be, could, could be, uh, you know, uh, tough to sustain. Um, so that makes a lot of sense. It's, it's, so now, in terms of kind of, uh, I want to go back to the contingency management in a minute, but in terms of sort of the, just the sort of long, longer term effectiveness. So did, 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 
some of these wage supplements over time get faded out? Yes. So at the end of the intervention, we didn't have a, a fading procedure for the wage supplements. At the end of the one year of phase two, the participants just stopped uh, earning the wage supplements. Mm, okay. And the data for the follow-up with them is forthcoming. So we'll have uh, some something interesting to say about that maybe later on. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. That, so that, that'll be really interesting to know sort of what... Uh, kind of some of those long-term outcomes are because your 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 point before about sort of you know contingency management working really well but then once you stop it you know everyone kind of relapses and so it makes a lot of sense to sort of well you know let, let, let's create a system where they can actually you know get their own jobs so they're continuing mm-hmm. to to have income and and you know i obviously i, I won't i won't make you give away the cliffhanger but you know fingers crossed that some of these folks were able to sort of you know keep things going um, yes, know, sort of I, after. Yes, and I think even during there were so many benefits of just being able to earn those incentives, have a little uh, cash in their pockets. A lot of times, people who are in drug addiction treatment or have chronic histories of drug use also have uh, legal problems because of the criminalization of drugs and possession of drugs that we um, have in in the United States. And they might have some physical problems associated with their drug use. A lot of people in methadone treatment um, tend to gain a lot of weight. Um, people who use certain drugs have dental problems. And and just having a little bit of money um, and having that job training and, and, and people who have, I don't know, uh, a, are encouraging um, these individuals to try and get a job and supporting them in that process can be really helpful, builds up their, you know, feelings of self-efficacy, but it also mm-hmm. gives them resources to clean themselves up. And, and one of the things we did was uh, the employment counselor worked with participants to look a little bit better for their job interviews, because mm-hmm. that can be, uh, and, you know, a, a, a first impression means a lot. Um, but in addition, you know, one of the participants in phase one uh, showed up one day um, and just looked at me and had this glowing smile on their face. And when I looked at them, I noticed they had a whole new set of teeth and they were able to afford those teeth just because they, you know, they enrolled in our study and were able to earn some incentives and have, you know, money to spend on um, taking care of themselves. And that's an investment that will last that person the rest of their life. Hopefully they had a good, (laughs) hopefully they had a good dental surgeon who (laughs) put some good implants in. And so, yeah. Um, so there are a lot of benefits of just giving people resources. Um, I think people living in poverty, um, if their basic needs are met, it's going to help set them up for success long-term. The second secret word is generalist. Totally. There's an assumption, I think, that some folks still have, though, that if you give someone who's addicted to substances money, that they're just going to spend it more on spend it on substances or spend it more mm-hmm. on sort of you know, you know, um, other sort of you know nefarious activities. Um, mm-hmm. But you're saying that's generally not the case. That you know, if folks have access to some resources, they're they're more likely to actually try to sort of you know help themselves out. Yeah, and I think the the key thing about abstinence reinforcement interventions is that they're only going to earn the money if they're continuing to be drug abstinent. Oh, of course, right. And so um, there are other applications of contingency management 
like uh, paying individuals to adhere to their medications mm. um, or paying them to attend therapy sessions. Um, but usually people, if they relapse into drug use, usually they will also stop taking their medications mm-hmm. and also stop attending mm-hmm. therapy sessions. So usually that drug use is correlated with the outcome that is not where the reinforcer is withheld. Um, so yes, people have that concern, but in contingency management, that's generally addressed by the design of the intervention where um, the reinforcer is withheld for when the target behavior is not emitted. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, this, the whole, I had no idea that contingency management had been, you know, in terms for for sort of for drug use had been around for so long to the point that it's you know reached sort of that status of an evidence based practice. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it doesn't seem is is that a well I guess maybe number one is that maybe just a, a an American thing um, or is that just something does it sort of like is that something are are we seeing a lot of contingency management programs in just regular sort of drug rehabilitation programs? That's a great question. And, you know, it might, at least in the United States, it's been recognized for some time as mm-hmm. a, an evidence-based practice uh, through the National Institute of Drug Abuse. Um, it's been recognized as an effective program by the White House in 2014. The Therapeutic Workplace was recognized as an uh, effective program for the treatment of drug use by the, the um, White House. Um, I think what researchers and clinicians have been trying to do, at least in in the last couple of decades, is look at how we can disseminate contingency management in a practical way. Like you mentioned that it gets expensive, especially if you're paying someone's wages, you're paying their wage supplements, you're paying their incentives for drug abstinence. And the, the, the research has been supported usually by uh, large grants that come from National Institute um, of drug abuse and and other like substance uh, substance abuse mental health services. Um, so there have been efforts by researchers to try and make this a more mainstream practice, but by no means is contingency management uh, as mainstream as I, I mean I'm biased, but as I think <laughs> it should be. Um, and so I uh, appreciate those efforts. So Nancy Petrie. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, was a pioneer researcher in disseminating contingency management and kind of figure out, conducted a lot of research evaluations on um, what makes contingency management appealing to practitioners, hmm. how to um, disseminate the intervention, for example, in, in the Veterans Administration. Uh, 2011, she published a paper on contingency management applied on a very large scale in the United States Veterans Administration. Um, And that program was funded by money allocated by the VA. And so they were evaluating uh, contingency management programs to help veterans with substance use disorder to adhere to their um, substance use disorder treatment um, and to stay uh, drug abstinent. There are also a number of other demonstration projects happening now. I think there um, some are funded by large departments allocating money toward the treatment of mm-hmm. substance use disorder with this evidence-based practice. Others are funded by um, insurance companies. I think the the wow. one limit to to that is that there's some law, and I'm no expert on this law, yeah. but there are anti-kickback laws 
where um, insurance companies cannot uh, provide money to providers um, in that form Ooh, that they can then give to clients as incentives. Um, and so there's been some uh, fight against this legislation, yeah. um, at least to pause it in when it relates to contingency management because it is so effective. But there are some demonstration projects that are happening in different cities where um, they're evaluating uh, smartphone delivered contingency management that are, that is funded through uh, private uh, partnerships through insurance companies and and comp uh, other businesses that are trying to disseminate contingency management. And so, really, we'll, we're going to see a lot of that work um, coming out in the next decade. That's really cool because that kind of led my, my next question was going to be, but I'm going to change it a bit. It was just going to be sort of you know, where do you get the money and, you know, to sort of pay for all this beyond and beyond grants? And, and how do you sort of convince folks that, you know, beyond grants that, you know, spending this kind of money up front could be a good thing. But I think what you're, what you're saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that there's that these insurance companies, which, you know, and we don't use the insurance model in, in, in Canada, we like sort of mm -hmm. use the, the, that, that model for billing. Um, but it sounds like what's happening is the insurance the insurance company would normally have to pay for you know if if the individual had insurance that is would normally have to pay for you know the you know expensive rehabs and the and the mm -hmm. residential treatment which i imagine is is probably way more expensive than any kind of you know outpatient contingency management kind of program um mm -hmm. and and so are is 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 what you're saying is that the insurance companies are actually seeing the 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 possible benefit of putting money into contingency management because in the long run it might save them money. Yes, I think so. And one of the smart things that researchers are doing in their clinical trials that are funded by large grants is that they're also asking health economists to participate in in these trials as evaluators, um, as collaborators. And the health economists are characterizing the cost benefit of this kind of treatment like in, in the long run. So are we avoiding e emergency room visits, which are very expensive? Yes. Are we avoiding uh, other treatments that would otherwise be put in place and paid for through those companies? Um, and to what extent, like how much is contingency management reducing those Health care, other health care costs because of its effectiveness in right now. Um, and so, yes, there, there's good research on, on um, the cost benefit that's been done by partnerships between behavior analysts and health economists in, in these research, large research projects. Oh, it's just mind blowing. And, and, and I say it, I mean, I think sort of as a, you know, a bit of a sort of a leftist thinking individual that I am, um, you know, uh, I, I often think about sort of, and, and also just being kind of, you know, working in kind of the, the PBS realm a lot. I often think about sort of, you know, how much can be saved in sort of every kind of sector. Um, and I know a lot of people think about this, uh, as it, you know, if we put more money into prevention, um, right. you know, more upfront money into prevention prevents, you know, the long-term, you know, uh, extreme expenses i mean a, a common example sort of in the you know kind of intellectual disability field is you know uh, if, if if we put the right kind of interventions in for children um especially those who are, might have more kind of severe challenges 
Um, we might be able to avoid things like group homes, which are just ridiculously mm-hmm. expensive to run. Um, and uh, I remember supporting an individual who, uh, and, and just for comparison's sake, young children in, and in, in, um, we're digressing on the topic here, but young children in, in, in my province, you know, under six, get something like $20,000 a year for autism services. But kids with that end, but adults who are like over so over nineteen who end up maybe maybe have autism or whatever and and really severe challenges, living in a group home, can end up being funded as high as two hundred thousand dollars a year to be in, to live in that residence. And so there's just it's a ridiculous amount of money that's sort of spent to sort of keep these individuals um, you know safe and healthy. And so, and, 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 and so, you know, just, just one example of, of many out there of how, you know, programs like, like the ones you're describing um, can really lead to, to long-term savings. And I think we've always known that or had that thought, but the idea that, you know, these big insurance companies have actually, you know, grabbed onto this idea is so promising, I think, for, you know, for, you know, other areas, too, that that maybe have done, mm-hmm. you know, levels of kind of prevention research and whatnot. Like, it, it it seems like, like, this is a concept that I would not have thought would have existed 10 years ago. Um, that, <laughs> that, you know, that, that the essentially the, and I'm not to sort of characterize all insurance companies as capitalist money making organizations, but, but some of them are. And so <laughs> to sort of, um, generous <laughs> you know maybe all of them are <laughs> to sort of um i have no idea but to, to, to sort of see that because i've always thought if we could find a way to make the guys with the wallets you know feel like their wallet could get fatter by doing this then we're set you know we've we've got an intervention that we can now fund for the rest of our lives um and it just seems like you're the first example i've heard of that actually maybe happening well, I, I think that's real. So you brought up a lot of interesting points, and, mm. and I think prevention is so important. And when people think about addiction, they don't think about classroom interventions as prevention. But mm. in the 1980s, uh, the, a researcher by the name of Kellum was conducting large scale evaluations of the good behavior game. This is an applied behavior analysis intervention, right, that has expectations and rewards in the classroom and that's implemented by teachers and uh, has shown to decrease problem behavior and increase uh, academic, desirable academic behavior in the classroom, or at least enable students to meet their academic goals because of the decrease in problem behavior and disruptive behavior in the classroom. Well, Callum conducted an evaluation in Baltimore, Maryland, in several different public schools of the good behavior game in the first grade classroom specifically. First grade seems to be such an important developmental time um, mm-hmm. where um, a, a lot of different things, uh, a lot of different interventions have been shown to prevent uh, negative outcomes in the future. But with the good behavior game, they found that good students in good behavior game classrooms versus students in uh, the regular classrooms or traditional classrooms, were less likely to engage in problematic substance use. They were less likely to engage in uh, risky sexual behavior. They were less likely to be um, considered uh, aggressive, um, for boys at least, 
Um, I don't know how much that has to do with with uh, other structural problems in the labeling of aggression in boys, mm -hmm. but um, mm -hmm. that the good behavior game classroom um, the good behavior game was associated with reductions in the risk of substance use and in the risk of risky sexual behavior. And I thought that 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 was so interesting to think about, right? Like just these behavioral interventions at this critical period of time can have really large downstream consequences later on in an individual's life. That's really cool. Um, the, 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 so the, the studies you put out, you put out several here, and I think you got a, probably a couple more still coming out. Um, talked about, you talked a lot about this kind of wage supplement model, but they also talked about a couple of other possible models that could be used or that, or that I think maybe um, uh, mm -hmm. Dr. Silverman might have looked at as well. Can you, can you touch on those a little bit, that there, there was there's some sure. other ways of looking at this? Yes, there are a variety of different approaches to take in phase two. Phase one of the therapeutic workplace is traditionally, again, it's that abstinence initiation and helping people to build their skills in those first like three months of abstinence. In phase two, you can try a number of different approaches to maintain the intervention long-term. One approach that has been evaluated uh, in the early 2000s, some of this work was being done, was a social business model. A social business is a business that uh, runs like a business, right? They, they, they hope to get profits, but the profits are not going into anybody's pocket in particular, but rather being going back into the social business to help the individuals who are employed in that business. And so a, a social business model of the therapeutic workplace um, looks a lot like in phase two, the participants are doing a job and they're earning money for doing that job. And any profits that are made are used to hire more people to do that job and to continue to keep people employed. Um, the, the researcher who developed this idea of social business is actually won the Nobel Peace Prize. Hmm. And uh, this is Muhammad Yunus. And the goal of any social business is to solve a social problem. And we can also think about social firms in a similar way. These are businesses that offer employment opportunities to people with mental illness or differing abilities. Yes. Um, yeah. So we're seeing a lot of those pop up and they're doing a lot of good work for the employees and for their communities. Um, so the social business model of the therapeutic workplace employed individuals after phase one into a data entry services jobs. And so they um, basically they learned keypad and typing skills in phase one. And the people who learned those skills really well, they actually use uh, fluency based programs and pretty much one minute timings, precision teaching type programs to cool. teach people to type and, and um, do keypad entry. Um, people who ended up learning skills and initiating and maintaining abstinence in that phase were then hired into the social business where they um, used those skills to enter data. They sold those data. They got money for the business, which then went back into it. That's awesome. I love how, I love how you know, you're able to sneak a little PT into there too for, 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 for <laughs> yeah. teaching those skills. It's so great. Well, Ken Silverman worked with Ogden Lindsley. Oh, well, there you go. Yes. So he does a lot of great fluency-based instruction in phase one in the therapeutic workplace. Some of the projects that um, I got to work on were um, looking at individuals' uh, reading skills 
uh, and computer-based treatment for reading. And actually, we started to build some computer-based training for helping people with broader digital literacy, because in the 21st century job search, you got to be able to fill out job applications online. And if you don't know how to enter text into a form, uh, then you're not going to be competitive for employment in the community. So there are a lot of interesting potential um, thesis projects for students and and projects for uh, building uh, computer-based training that are out there for applied behavior analysts to get involved with. Um, kind of a, a tangent, but just because you mentioned sort of using computers and uh, uh, to sort of do some teaching, I, uh, 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 this kind of moves away from the drug addic- the addiction piece a bit, but I noticed a reference in one of these studies to another study that, that you were involved in where you've done some work using computers to support folks with HIV. Mm-hmm. What, 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 what were you doing there? Yeah, so there was uh, another large clinical trial uh, at the time that I was a postdoc at in Ken's lab, in Dr. Oh. Silverman's lab, uh, where we were evaluating the effectiveness of incentives for uh, viral suppression for individuals with HIV who maintained high viral loads. So there's a lot of background there that I can get into. Um, HIV is treatable now with antiretroviral therapy. Antiretroviral therapy involves taking a bunch of pills, uh, but if those pills are taken every day for the rest of the person's life and they maintain perfect adherence or close to perfect adherence to that pill-taking regimen, mm. then they their viral loads can reduce to a point of being undetectable um, and can stay that way for the rest of their lives. They can live HIV-free for the rest of their lives and you know not develop AIDS and, and have that shortened lifespan and other devastating health consequences that that happen um, with the course of that disease and but but sometimes people don't take their medication right uh, or they don't take it every day and what can happen when people don't take that that antiretroviral therapy every day is that they develop resistance to the effects of that the antiretroviral therapy and so it's critical for people to to adhere to that treatment regimen as close to perfectly as possible for the rest of their lives because mm-hmm. they there are only a few different types of ART and if people exhaust all of their options there then um, then they're they're not going to be able to have those great outcomes from mm-hmm. ART. Mm-hmm. So the trial was evaluating a very high fin- magnitude of um, financial incentive money for um, uh, maintaining. Uh, undetectable viral loads, or at least for viral loads to decrease initially, mm. and for those viral loads to stay undetectable um, over the course of a very well, a year. And uh, it was really effective. So, I mean, this, this intervention probably saved lives. Yeah. Um, Amazing. The, the incentive group maintained uh, undetectable viral loads. We didn't even uh, reinforce pill taking. They knew that they were supposed to take their pills. They knew they were supposed to take it every day. Mm-hmm. But um, what was reinforced is they provided blood samples, and those blood samples were tested for the presence of um, HIV RNA. And uh, Dr. Silverman, Silverman collaborated with um, 
Robert Silicano, a, a HIV researcher who mm. understands, you know, exactly how the viral loads decrease with the medication and found the exact way to reinforce decreases and then maintenance of undetectable viral loads. Um, and and it's just it, it's such a simple yeah. and incredibly effective intervention. Some, I, I don't want to give an exact, some 80% uh, or more of participants in the incentive group maintain undetectable viral loads. That's and amazing. That, yeah, that, uh, it was an amazing study. And, and my involvement in the study was to look at um, how we can improve uh, HIV, knowledge about HIV and ART and the antiretroviral therapy mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, in individuals when they signed on to the study. Mm. So we evaluated an education program that was based on the CDC uh, educational materials out mm -hmm. there um, about HIV and ART. And individuals had generally a very low knowledge of HIV and ART initially. We presented in a um, in a multiple probe design uh, three different modules uh, that taught them about different components of uh, the disease and its treatment, and then uh, probed their knowledge four different times: once before any of the modules, once after the first module, once after the second, and then and then once after the third and final module. And it looks a lot like a multiple baseline design because it, oh. it is a variation of the multiple baseline design. Sure. But what we found was uh, um, we use actually fluency-based training in our modules where uh, participants were given the information, presented with the information. Uh, they were tested in a SAS meds kind of way yep. um, uh, on that information. And then they took a cumulative test after that. And in the cumulative test, their knowledge increased significantly after each module for that module that they were tested on and, and uh, maintained for modules that they were tested on previously and did not increase for modules that they were not um, trained on. Really cool. It was, yeah, it was a really cool study. It's, it shows the effectiveness of these uh, applied behavior analytic tools that we have in training people on anything, really. We have such, yes. you know, I, I, I was, I was, trained when I was in doing my postdoc at behavioral pharmacology research unit, I also got the um, real privilege of being trained by some of the uh, pioneers in the field of contingency management, Maxine, Dr. Maxine Stitzer, Dr. George Bigelow, and Dr. George Bigelow, I'll never forget one of the presentations he gave about contingency management, where he talked about these, this behavioral treatment is a generalist treatment. It's based on treatments that are broadly applicable to so many different behaviors. Whereas pharmacology, which is, you know, I don't know, by the general public may be held in higher esteem. It's more uh, medicalized and, you know, it's, it's associated with health more than contingency management would be mm -hmm. in the general population. Mm -hmm. And is a specific treatment. It mm. treats a specific type of substance use disorder. Methadone is not going to work for someone with cocaine use disorder. Um, you know, buprenorphine is not going to work for someone with methamphetamine problems. Um, they target specific receptor systems and specific processes. I mean, naltrexone is a, a great drug because um, it affects, uh, it, it has been shown effective for individuals with alcohol use disorder and opioid use disorder and some other problems. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, it's still a specific treatment, but this tool that we have in contingency management is that it can be applied to any substance use disorder. And, you know, moving back to our discussion on behavioral addictions, it could be a great intervention to reduce people's smartphone use, 
um, to reduce compulsive overeating, to reduce um, mm-hmm. any distress caused by uh, uh, certain uh, inappropriate sexual behaviors. Um, and, and the same goes for, you know, all of our applied behavior analytic technology. Our education and training programs can be applied to a variety of different populations to treat a variety or to uh, help build skills in a variety of different target behaviors, including, you know, teaching kids academic skills and school sight words and, um, and all that good stuff, but also teaching adults. Um, how to use a keypad and, a, and type on a computer or teaching individuals with HIV about their disease and how it can be treated. And so I just love applied behavior analysis and its broad uh, application. And, and we can be, you know, I encourage whoever's out there doing ABA to push, push those boundaries within your scope of competence, of course, mm-hmm. <laughs> but to, to push those boundaries in, in testing the effectiveness of whatever it is you're competent in. The third secret word is fluency. Well, and something I also like just is sort of how how you're kind of combining, um, you know, different realms of ABA, particularly prison teaching. I mean, persistent teaching is something that, you know, lots of evidence, uh, you know, brilliant way of, you know, brilliant measurement systems and so many good, good things around PT. And yet, we don't see a lot of programs sort of in the ABA realm that take advantage of that. You mm-hmm. know, there's often, you know, PT is often sitting on its sort of its own sort of, uh, you know, uh, island and, and, and folks just aren't coming to, to access it, even though they provide a lot of a lot of pieces that can be really helpful in other areas. So to see that you're mm-hmm. using contingency management, you're using the persistent teaching, you're using the, 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 the fluency stuff and really kind of bringing that all together uh, in an area that's completely outside of what you know, folks would normally, you know, think to uh, apply, you know, this technology to is just awesome. And and it's going to really, I think, get a lot of people excited. Yeah, for sure. I'm standing on the shoulders of giants with that one. But but yeah, you know, I won't take credit. Dr. Silverman has developed a a lot of the models of of integrating all of those treatments in a very creative way and continues to do so. Um, And so, uh, yeah, it it was great to have the opportunity to work with him as a mentor. Totally. Um, and and to, to think about behavior analysis in this very creative way. I wanted to just, uh, in, in sort of our, our last bit of time, um, well, all this is just amazing and inspiring and wonderful. It also takes, you know, a lot of work to kind of build one of these programs and, Absolutely. and kind of put all these systems into place. And, you know, we could certainly talk about what that takes at, at another time. But I know there's there's going to be listeners out there that are you know maybe working you know in a you know in a maybe a consulting firm on their own and and uh, you know I I think of it from sort of personal experience of the company I work at we get a lot of referrals that are you know um, um, folks that first off maybe don't even know what ABA or 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 is or or anything and they're just sort of you know, it's sort of the, the, the last thing on the list of, of things sort of a government program can offer is, well, let's try the behavior consultants and see what they can do. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and sometimes we do get folks that are, you know, uh, that, are, that are dealing with addictions. Um, and often we're, we just don't we don't even know what to do there. 
um, uh, what once with with that sort of piece. I mean, we can help with sort of other areas, but when it comes to actually kind of working with drug addiction, kind of one on one um, as 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 a behavior analyst, are are there are there things out there we can do as individuals to help folks beyond sort of developing a whole, you know, sort of countywide or, or province wide or whatever program to sort of address, you know, the needs of a, a ton of people and get a grant mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. Um, yes. And I, I wish yeah. I could solve that problem in a brief or <laughs> describe the solution to that problem in a brief statement. But I, I, I think one thing I want to emphasize is to just, uh, to do research, do your research on understanding addiction. I think, uh, you know, behavior analysts have an understanding that uh, problem behaviors are learned and that, you know, we're compelled to act in certain ways based on the selection of behaviors by their consequences. And it's, but it's, but it's really easy to see an individual with disabilities um, an individual with autism mm -hmm. um, as suffering, or, I don't want to say suffering, is as experiencing these target behaviors, uh, these problem behaviors outside of their control. Mm -hmm. um, but, but behavior analysts still hold stigma toward individuals with addiction yes. as experiencing their target, their problem behaviors as something that they chose to do, yes. you know, declarative, that they can declare as a conscious choice. Yes. Um, and so just trying to, so first applying our understanding of human behavior to individuals with addiction, mm -hmm. um, to get a more compassionate, uh, to, to, to get a more compassionate understanding of addiction will make us want to help a little bit more and mm -hmm. advocate a little bit more for this population. Um, and then understanding Okay, so what resources are there in my community that I can refer them to? Um, there, there may not be widespread application of contingency management, mm -hmm. um, but there might be places that use that uh, a scientific understanding of addiction to to treat it. Mm -hmm. um, and so, coming up with a list uh, when I moved, so I I'm not at uh, Hopkins anymore. I, I transitioned from my postdoctoral position to a position as a faculty member at California State University, Stanislaus. Um, I've been here for a few years now. And mm. the first thing I did um, was I looked around for practitioners and uh, individuals who are doing uh, harm reduction work. Um, there's a lot of really good, um, at least in California, <laughs> where I'm uh, fortunate to be situated in a place where there was a lot of really good work being done um, to reduce overdoses through yes. Um, uh, community uh, training uh, using drugs like naloxone, which are pretty much harmless and easy to deliver um, yes. when you see an individual overdosing from opioids. Um, and so where where are the programs that are training the community community members on that? And can I get training? And, mm -hmm. and I, I keep naloxone in my home um, and in my office. So do I. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, so yes. Yeah, so, looking for those compassionate approaches, individuals who are treating um, substance use disorder using evidence-based scientific approaches, usually um, county mental health programs or our um, government-sponsored um, mental health and behavioral health programs yeah. uh, exist where we can make referrals. 
uh, knowing what those harm reduction programs are and, and, how, and whether we can refer people to them mm -hmm. um, is also really important. And then understanding, okay, so so what is my what is my local government doing mm -hmm. um, to support the uh, a scientific approach to treating addiction and and uh, so I got involved with some community organizations through the county um, and through the city um, to find out what individuals uh, in government are doing. Um, I found out some pretty cool things about California. There's the oh. Mental Health Mental Health Services um, Act (MHSA) that puts a tax on um, earners at the highest tax bracket, oh. uh, like it's a one percent tax. Um, so they're not missing it. Um, to support oh. programs that treat uh, individuals who are treatment resistant, uh, uh, who have you know been through the system over and over again and are not um, able to get out of their circumstances. Um, and some of the programs uh, deemed as full service partnerships in my county uh, are using models of assertive community treatment. They call oh. it ACT, but it's okay. not the same as as uh, ACT. Except as a commitment therapy, but uh, a sort of community treatment um, is an approach where out individuals uh, are employed as outreach um, agents. Uh, they go out into the community, they find people where they're at, they give them, and they use incentive programs, <laughs> um, and and you know give people, take people to 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 the grocery store, take right. them to get a burger, um, and help them stay engaged with the treatment system, so that when they are ready to do something to 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 up um, to enter into uh, addiction treatment. They know who to go to, mm. or they know that someone's going to be coming by on Tuesday to give them a gift card. Mm. Um, so, a sort of community treatment. Um, find out if that's happening in your community. See if you can get involved, and um, or at least you know f uh, get some contacts in that space. Yeah. Um, know who the outreach coordinators are um and 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 maybe they can help with uh people you run into in practice and i suppose there's probably things because i mean obviously we're not you know we're, we don't have the the competency to you know tackle this on our own this is totally a you know a collaborative process a mm -hmm. wraparound process uh, particularly with you know some of the medical needs and whatnot and so i would imagine maybe some of our work might just be around sort of you know, motivating individuals to mm -hmm. to access the programs. Uh, yeah. So you know, and that might be things maybe maybe through ACT or uh, I don't know. There's probably maybe there's other ways we can sort of help folks doing that. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, well, know know where to refer people, but also um, I think one treatment that has been shown to be really effective with individuals with addiction who are ambivalent about mm -hmm. making a change mm -hmm. is motivational interviewing ah. and motivational enhancement therapy. Uh, and behavior analysts can get some training in the core processes of motivational interviewing. Mm. And I feel like that can help us to make effective referrals, but also can help us to build really great rapport with our clients and stakeholders and third parties with whom we work in practice. Um, Motivational interviewing basically just talks about um, how to develop good counseling skills, mm. uh, asking people open-ended questions, reflect, like expressing empathy and active listening through using reflections when people are talking, uh, reflecting back what 
the person is saying to you. Um, so they can hear what they said yes. um, more objectively um, using things like affirmations, which, you know, are, well, are descriptive praise statements, but using things like affirmations where you're calling upon the strengths of the individual who you're talking to to help build them up mm. um, and, um, you know, helping them to see what they have said over the course of the conversation with you using summaries, which is a collection of reflections um, uh, where you can have that sort of a really good function to transition someone to talk about to talk about what you want them to talk about or you know what what you yes, think yes. Um, would move the conversation forward, um, not in a directive way but in a in an sure, empathetic sure. way. So yeah, motivational interviewing is a great um, or uh, has a great uh, cluster of skills that behavior analysts. Are, are well suited to learn and implement and practice no matter who they're talking to, whether they're making a yes. referral to someone um, uh, or, or helping someone work through their ambivalence about their substance use disorder or um, just connecting with our clients and stakeholders. Yes. Yeah, it seems like, a, a, like everything you're saying just seems like a big piece that's kind of missing, I think, from mm. some from behavior analytic kind of training programs is, is sort of the these counseling skills. There are some folks out there that end up becoming counselors and and combining that with their 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 BCBA or whatnot, but mm -hmm. it's so surprising to me that um, you know we're not taught those skills when you know ninety percent of our job is to re dealing directly with people and trying to right. you know get 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 them into, into sort of do it. like I, I can see this being a really powerful tool you know in terms of sort of you know, parent training and kind of getting parent buy-in mm -hmm. and whatnot, especially in for folks that you know like the ones i told you we were supporting where they they don't even know who we are um right. and what we do so yeah no that makes a lot of sense really cool um just to kind of wrap things up i'm just wondering you mentioned you know do your research um and so what 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 resources are there out there for folks that are maybe just starting starting to want to learn more about addictions and learn more about kind of you know this this kind of work? Are are, are there like interest groups? Are there mm -hmm. you know conferences or things like uh, I, I know there's sort of the obviously the ABA International and whatnot, and you might catch the odd thing here and there. But you know what what are some really good resources for you know new behavior analysts or not behavior analysts that are kind of new to this realm? Yeah, there are a number of researchers in behavior analysis who are publishing in behavior analytic journals like JABA, uh, Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis, mm. like uh, Behavior Analysis in Practice, mm. um, the Behavior Analyst, uh, who are publishing on addiction research on contingency management. Mm. Uh, so type in contingency management in a keyword search for those journals. And there have been some, there's been in behavior analysis and practice, I believe, Recently, there's been some um, articles about getting involved in um, addiction research, or, or maybe in Java. Oh, <laughs> I, I can link. I can give you some of those resources so you sure. can link them. Perfect, amazing. Um, and so there's there's you know great review papers, uh, uh, editorial papers, and research papers published in behavior analytic journals in addiction. So read about them and. And in, you know, the, there are chapters in our behavior analytic textbooks on uh, addiction treatment as well, mm -hmm. um, or uh, Dr. Silverman and um, Holton and I and some, some colleagues recently uh, published a chapter in the new Handbook of Applied Behavior Analysis on um, abstinence, re uh, behavior analysis and treatment of drug addiction. Cool. 
Uh, and then there are conference groups and special interest groups and, and whole conferences, actually. So uh, if you know about the Association for Behavior Analysis International, there's an addiction special interest group or SIG. Mm. Okay. Um, I, I think actually it's going to date the podcast, but I think uh, Dr. Holton is running that special interest group right now. Ah, very good. Yeah. And ABAI just recently started a whole addiction conference. Wow. Um, so, yeah, so uh, that is another resource, great resource out there. To These conferences are a great way to get a sense of what is the cutting-edge research that's happening right now that, you know, is delayed in the publication process, but you know what's mm-hmm. going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, I think that's all I had to say about that. Yeah, <laughs> so, no, yeah, that, that's, research, pretty that's pretty good. That's pretty good, yeah. Conferences. And I encourage people to um, look in, at other journals that are publishing work on addiction, like... Mm-hmm. Um, drug and alcohol dependence or addiction, a journal of substance abuse treatment. Um, and there's behavior analytic work often being published in these journals, okay. just not under the, you know, keywords of applied behavior analysis. Mm-hmm. That's a wealth of resources. A whole conference, though, that's that's definitely something uh, I know I'm going to be looking at. And I'm sure others will. Is that an annual thing or is that just uh, have they had one yet? Or Yes, they have had. Um, they have had the addiction conference. I'm mm. not sure if it's annual or uh, every other year. A lot of things have been stalled uh, of by course. the pandemic. Of course, of course. Wow, really cool, really cool. Uh, you know, I had no idea how much is being done in this area. I had definitely had a lot of, uh, you know, mis- misconceptions and misinformation, uh, you know, I, and I think others will have too, particularly around contingency management. Uh, you know, I had no idea that it's been around for so long and had so much mm-hmm. support behind it. And the idea, of, and again, the insurance company thing is just, 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 just amazing. Uh, really neat. So much really good stuff here. Uh, so, you know, I, 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 yeah, I think folks are going to, going to, going to get, going to get a lot out of this. I know I have. Thanks again, Srinidhi, for being on here. Really cool. Really fun conversation. Yeah, it's great to talk with you. Awesome.